Chapter 14 of Visions and Revisions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Walter Petter. What are the qualities that make this shy and furtive recluse, this wanderer in the shadows, the greatest of critics? Imagination in the first place and then that rare, unusual, divine gift of limitless reverence for the human senses. Imagination has a twofold power. It visualizes and it creates. With clairvoyant ubiquity it floats and flows into the most recondite recesses, the most reluctant sanctuaries of other men's souls. With clear-cut architectural volition it builds up its own Byzantium out of the quarried debris of all the centuries. One loves to think of Pater leaving the Olney country, where he hated to hear anything more about the poet Cooper, and nursing his weird boy fancies in the security of the Cambridge cloisters. The most passionate and dedicated spirit he, to sulk and dream and hide and love, and watch the others playing in the quiet retreat, since the great soul of Christopher Marlowe flamed up there into consciousness. And then Oxford. And it is meet and right at such a point as this, to lay our offering modest secret shy, a shadow or nothing, at the feet of this gracious alma mater, who needs not June for beauty's heightening. One revolts against her sometimes. The charm is too exclusive, too withdrawn, and something, what shall I say, of ironic, supercilious delusion makes her forehead weary and her eyelids heavy. But after all, to what exquisite children, like rare exotic flowers, she has the power to give birth. But did you know, you for whom the syllables Oxford are an incantation, that to the yet more subtle, yet more withdrawn, and yet more elaborate soul of Walter Pater, Oxford herself appeared as time went on, a little vulgar and silly. Indeed, he fled from her and took refuge sometimes with his sisters. For, like Charles Lamb, Pater was conventual in his taste, and sometimes with the original of Marquis the Epicurean. But what matter where he fled? He who always followed the shady side of the road, he has not only managed to escape himself with all his boxes of alabaster into the sanctuary of the ivory tower that even oxford cannot reach but he has carried us thither with him and there from the opal clouded windows of that high place he shows us still the secret kingdoms of art and philosophy and life and the remotest glories of them we see them all from those windows a little lovelier a little rarer a little more selective than perchance they really are but what matter what does one expect when one looks through opal clouded windows and after all those are the kinds of windows from which it is best to look at the dazzling limbs of the immortal gods not but what sometimes he permits us to throw those magic casements wide open and then and how lucid an air and how clean and fresh a morning of reality those pure forms and godlike figures stand out, their naked feet in the cold, clear dew. 
For one must note two things about Walter Pater. He is able to throw the glimmering mantle of his own elaborate sophistry of the senses over comparatively fleeting, unarresting objects, and he is able to compel us to follow line by line, curve by curve, contour by contour, the very palpable body and presence of the beauty that passeth not away. In plainer words, he is a great and exact scholar, laborious, patient, indefatigable, reserved, and at the same time a protean wizard, breathing forbidden life into the Tyrian-stained writhings of many an enchanted Lamia. At a thousand points, he is the only modern literary figure who draws us towards him with the old Leonardian, Goethean spell, for like Goethe and da Vinci, he is never far from those eternal partings of the ways which alone make life interesting. He is, for instance, more profoundly drenched, dyed and imbued in Christian mythology than any mortal writer short of the saints themselves. He is more native to the pure Hellenic air than any since Walter Savage Landor. And he is more subtle in his understanding of German philosophy as opposed to Celtic romance than all outside the most inner circle since Hegel or Hein. The greedy, capricious, Uranian babyishness of his pupil Oscar, with its peevish clutching at all soft and provocative and glimmering things, is mere child's play compared with the deep, dark vampirism with which this furtive hermit drains the scarlet blood of the vestals of every sanctuary. How little the conventional critics have understood this master of their own craft! What helpless people have rushed in to interpret this super-subtle interpreter! Edmund Gose has, however, done one thing for us. Somewhere, somehow, he once drew a picture of Walter Pater gambling in the moonlight on the velvet lawn of his own secluded Oxford garden, like a satin-poured wombat. I always think of that picture. It is pleasanter one than that of Mark Patterson, running round his gooseberry bushes after great screaming girls. But they are both touching sketches, and no doubt very indicative of life beneath the shadow of the Baudelian. Why have the professional philosophers, ever since the master of Balliol, who used to spend his time boring holes in the ship that carried him, fought shy of Pater's philosophy? For a sufficient reason, because like Protagoras the Sophist, and like Aristippus the Cyrenean, he has undermined metaphysic by means of metaphysic. For Walter Pater, as that clearly understood, was an adept long before Nietzsche's campaign began, at showing the human desire, the human craving, the human ferocity, the human spite, hidden beneath the mask of pure reason. He treats every great system of metaphysic as a great work of art, with a very human, often a too human, artisan behind it, a work of art which we have a perfect right to appropriate, to enjoy, to look at the world through, and then to pass on. Every philosophy has its secret, according to Pater, its formula, its lost Atlantis. Well, it is for us to search it out to take colour from its dim-lit underworld, to feed upon its wavering sea-lotus, and then returning to the surface to swim away in search of other diving grounds. 
No philosopher except Pater has dared to carry esoteric eclecticism quite as far as this. And be it understood, he is no frivolous dilettante. This straining the secret wine of the great embalmed sarcophagi of thought is his life lure, his secret madness, his grand obsession. Walter Pater approaches a system of metaphysical thought as a somewhat furtive amorist might approach a sleeping nymph on light-stepping, crafty feet he approaches, and the hand with which he twitches the sleeve of the sleeper is as soft as the flutter of a moth's wing. I do not like, he said once, to be called a hedonist. It gives such a queer impression to the people who don't know Greek. Ardent young people sometimes come to me, when in the wayfaring of my patient academic duties I speak about Pater, and ask me point-blank to tell them what his viewpoint, so they are pleased to express it, really and truly was. Sweet reader, do you know the pain of these really and truly questions? I try to answer in some blundering manner like this. I try to explain how, for him, nothing in this world was certain or fixed, how everything flowed away, how all that we touch or taste or see vanished, changed its nature, became something else even as we vanish as the years go on and change our nature and become something else. I tried to explain how, for him, we are ourselves but the meeting places of strange forces, journeying at large and by chance through a shifting world, how we too, these very meeting places of such forces, waver and flicker and shift, and are transformed like dreams within dreams. I tried to explain how, this being so, and nothing being written in the sky, it is our right to test every single experience that life can offer, short of those which would make things bitterer, harder, narrower, less easy for the other person. And if my innocents ask, as they do sometimes, innocents are like that, why must we consider the other person? I answer, for no reason and under no threat or danger or categorical imperative, but simply because we have grown to be that sort of animal, the sort of queer fish who cannot do things that he would. It is not, I try to indicate, a case of conscience. It is a matter of taste, and there are certain things, when it comes to that point, which an animal possessed of such tastes cannot do, even though he desire to do them. And one of these things is to hurt the other trapped creatures who happen to have been caught in the same gin as ourself. With regard to art and literature, Pater has the same method as with regard to philosophy. Everything in a world so fluid is obviously relative. It is ridiculous to dream that there is any absolute standard, even of beauty itself. Those high and immutable principles of the good and true are as much an illusion as any other human dream. There are no such principles. Beauty is a daughter of life, and is forever changing as life changes, and as we change who have to live the lonely, tragic faith of certain great souls in that high, cold, mathematic of the universe, the rhythm of whose ordered harmony is the music of the spheres, is a faith that may well inspire and solemnize us. It cannot persuade or convince us. Beauty is not mathematical. It is, 
if one may say so, physiological and psychological. And though that austere severity of pure line and pure colour, the impersonal technique of art, has a seemingly preordained power of appeal. In reality, it is far less immutable than it appears, and has far more in it of the arbitrariness of life and growth and change than we sometimes would care to allow. Walter Patter's magnetic spell is never more wonder-working than when he deals with the materials which artists use, and most of all with words. That material which is so stained and corrupted and outraged, and yet which is the richest of all. But how tenderly he always speaks of materials. What a limitless reverence he has for the subtle reciprocity and correspondence between the human senses and what, so thrillingly, so dangerously sometimes, they apprehend. Wood and clay and marble and bronze and gold and silver, these and the fabrics of cunning looms and deft, insatiable fingers, he handles with the reverence of a priest, touching consecrated elements. Not only the great main rivers of art's tradition, but the little streams and tributaries he loves. Perhaps he loves some of these best of all, for the pathways to their exquisite margins are less trodden than the others, and one is more apt to find oneself alone there. Perhaps of all his essays, three might be selected as most characteristic of certain recurrent moods. That one on Denis Leverot, where the sweet, perilous legend of the exiled god. Has he really been ever far from us, that treacherous son of scorched white flesh? Led us so far, so strangely far. That one on Watteau, the prince of court painters, where his passion for things faded and withdrawn reaches its climax. For Pater, like Antoine, is one of those always ready to turn a little wearily from the pressure of their own vivid days and seek a wistful escape in some fantastic valley of dreams. Watteau's happy valley is indeed sadder than our most crowded hours. How should it not be, when it is no valley at all but the melancholy cypress alleys of Versailles? But though sadder, it is so fine, so fine and rare and gay. And along the borders of it and under its clipped trees, by its fountains and ghostly lawns, still, still can one catch in the twilight the shimmer of the dancing feet of the phantom Perrault and the despair in a smile. For him too, for Giles the mummer, as for Antoine Watteau and Walter Patter, the wistfulness of such places is not inconsistent with their levity. Soon the music must stop. Soon it must be only a garden. Only a garden of Lenotre, correct, ridiculous and charming. For the lips of the despair of Perrault cannot always touch the lips of mockery of Columbine. And in the end, the ultimate futility must turn them both to stone. And finally, that essay upon Leonardo, with the lines we say to our friend about her who is older than the rocks on which she sits. What really makes Pater so great, so wise, so salutary a writer, is his perpetual insistence on the criminal, mad foolishness of letting slip and silly chatter and vapid preaching, 
the unreturned days of our youth. Carry, O youths and maidens, he seems to say, carry with infinite devotion that vase of many odours, which is your life on earth. Spill as little as may be of its unvalued wine. Let no raindrops or briony dew or floating gossamer seed fall into it and spoil its taste. For it is all you have and it cannot last long. He is a great writer because from him we may learn the difficult and subtle art of drinking the cup of life so as to taste every drop. One could expatiate long upon his attitude to Christianity, his final desire to be ordained priest, his alternating pieties and incredulities, his deliberate clinging to what experience brought him as the final test of truth made it quite easy for him to dip his arms deep into the holy well. He might not find the grail. He might see nothing there but his own shadow. What matter? The well itself was so cool and chaste and dark and cavern-like that it was worth long summer days spent dreaming over it, dreaming over it in the cloistered garden, out of the dust and the folly and the grossness of the brutal world that knows neither Apollo or Christ. End of chapter 14